tonight. Those of you that are here with us in person, we're glad to see each and every one of you that we can see through the darkness back there. And those of you that are joining us online, we're so glad that you are with us on this nice warm Wednesday night. But after all, it is August, so we shouldn't be too too shocked and too surprised by uh, uh, being in this warm, warm weather. I, as I mentioned Sunday, I want to begin something tonight that I have, uh, I don't know that I've ever taught it in quite this way, I just have to find it in my notes here. Um, Steps of Abraham, where are we this morning? Here we go, okay. Um, this is not something I had planned, I actually had something else planned to start tonight. But while we were in praise and worship on Wednesday, uh, on Sunday morning, and God often gives me direction or, or shows me something that I need uh, or we're going to need during praise and worship in the service. And he just dropped this little series in me. I don't think it's going to take a long time. Um, but we'll get into it because I believe it's important for where we are right now. And in some of the things you're going to hear, many of the things you're going to hear if you've been around for a while, you've heard these things before. I've heard them for years. I've taught them for years. But there's the thing about God's truth as I've been listening to teachings of other people and, and uh, li- listening to things, some of these teachings I know by heart. I, could, I can repeat the words, but, but, but when they're words of truth and they, you open to let them down into your heart, they're never old, they're never stale, because Jesus said, my words are spirit and my words are life. And what we endeavor to do tonight is to allow the Holy Spirit to take these words and as we've been talking about on Sunday, to deposit them, sow them down into our hearts. So I'm believing as we go through this, that this is going to have an impact on your life and on the life of this church. So to do that, we're going to talk about, let's go to Hebrews 11. What we're going to do is we're going to talk, the, the, the message that God gave me was uh, uh, the steps of Abraham's faith. And I thought that title was a little too long to put up on the graphic that they put up. So the the title of the series is technically Following the Faith of Abraham. But as we're going to see in a few minutes, is the steps of Abraham's faith. And and as we go through these steps together and how he grew in faith, I believe that God's going to help locate us where we are and then encourage us and help us to move to the next level. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11, very well-known verse. Uh, Hebrews 11 is known uh, informally as the Hall of Fame of Faith because it's all about some of the great men and women of faith and the things that God was used to accomplish them. But the core of this chapter is around verse 6. He's just finished talking about Enoch. Enoch was an early church father, and it says he did not see death, but he was not, for he's not found because God just took him. He walked so close with God, God just said, you're not going home tonight, you're coming home with me. So he didn't die, he just was translated in his body into heaven to be with God. And verse 6 says, because he was because of his faith, he did not see death. But verse 6 says, without faith, and I want to let this settle into us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. That needs to sink into us. Because we often forget about faith, I mean this is, the name of our church is Faith Christian Center, and there was a big trend a number of years ago, and I suppose it's still out there, for churches that have been around a while, such as this church has been, to kind of rebrand itself and give it some modern name like Elevation or 
some clever name that doesn't really imply that it's a church. And I just never felt led to change the name of the church because the foundation for this church is still the same. We are faith-based. We are Christian church. And this is a center from things which things go out. And so, so, and this is part of why, because there, there are trends sometimes in the teaching in, as the churches go through different cycles to kind of get away from faith and there are other trends. But this verse tells us why, it's, why we should never get very far away from teaching about faith. Because the writer of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit is telling us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not hard. It's not just that God likes faith, is pleased with faith. It's that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The word impossible here in the Greek is a word that means without the strength to do something, without the capacity to do something. So many times where we try to do things we hope God's pleased with our, our giving, our church attendance, our, 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 our whatever we do. But the Bible teaches us that unless whatever we do is done out of faith, it cannot please God. Uh, Romans chapter uh, 14, I think it's in verse 23. They're not going to put it up there. But, but it says this. It says, whatever is not done in faith is sin. That's Let me read that to you again. Whatever is not done out of faith is sin. Whatever is not done out of faith is sin. And we're going to see why. Because if it's not done out of faith, it's done trusting in something else other than God. Whether it's ourself, but usually it's ourself. And the root of all sin is self. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because you cannot, without, because for, and he now is going to tell you why. For who, whoever comes to God must, that word must is a Greek word, it, it says there is no other possibility. Without faith, uh, in order to come to God, you must believe that he is. Say, well, that's easy. I wouldn't even be here if I didn't believe that God existed. That's not what it's talking about. It's not a mental belief that God exists. It's believing that God is there present with you. We just sang tonight about in your about His presence, and in 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 I've just been, uh, been Lord's been trying to teach me how to be more present to my wife, which means available to her, open to her, not just existing with her, but my attention is on her. And while I was praying for more ability to do that and more grace to do that, God began to speak to me and let me know that he is always present to me. Now, are you aware and conscious that God's always present to you? That doesn't mean you see there. His eyes are always on you. His ears are always open to hear you talk to him. And his heart is open to hear your requests. He's always there. But very few of us, and the few that do, don't do this very much, 
walk around with a living conscience, consciousness that he is right here with me no matter whether I feel him or not. Because notice what the writer is talking about. He's talking about coming to God. That does not just talk about prayer. That talks about a relationship where you are present to God and God is present to us. Remember when God, why God created man to begin with. God created man to begin with to have a relationship with. Because the implication in Genesis 1 and 2, especially 2, is that God's habit was to walk in the garden physically with his man and then his man and woman. To physically be with them and to commune with them. And the whole purpose of the Bible from chapter 3 of Genesis right on up to the end of the book of Revelation is God restoring that relationship, that physical, personal, present relationship with his creation, man, with, with, with us. And everything God did is to restore that, and we don't have the time even to begin, but I could take you through the different stages of God's relationship with men and the things that he did, and they were the necessary steps to, re, re, uh, to restore that. So here the understanding is the reason faith is so critical is because in order to be conscious of God's presence, because you can't see him. I mean, I have to work not because of her, because I'm a male, <laughs> I have to work at being physically, mentally conscious and, and present to her because it's so easy to be with somebody and not be present with them. And so that's what we are like with God so often. Even if you're aware of him, we're kind of aware, yeah, God is, God's here, but are you present to him? Are you conscious of him? Are you talking with him through the day? Are you aware of his presence with you? And as you, this is not some light that suddenly comes on, although I guess it can happen. But by and large, it's something you grow in every day. And this is something I've been doing over the last few years, and it's changing my life as I face challenges and difficult issues, whether it's in the church or other issues outside of the church. I'm learning that God's present there with me, right in the middle of that situation, to give me answers, to help me through something, so I don't have to face anything alone. But he wants us to come to him, but to do that, it requires faith, because you must believe that he is when you can't see him. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And since you can't see him in order to believe he's here, that requires faith. But there's more than that. There's a second thing we have to believe, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, he will answer you. He will respond to you. He will respond to your needs. He will respond to your prayers. He is there, and that takes faith to believe that, because you can't see the answer. And the one requirement that Jesus explained to us in order to receive things from God, Mark eleven twenty four, is you have to believe that you've received it before you can see it. And you have to believe that you've received it, and then you shall have it in the tangible form. Why? Because you have to believe that God's given it when you can't see him handing it to you, or as we learned before, having already done it for us. So we can begin to see why faith is so critical because it's the core of the relationship, not just to know that God exists and not for just for us to be saved, but to walk in the relationship that God not only ordained for you, but he sent his son to give his life and shed his blood so you and I could walk in and enjoy that relationship. 
John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that you should know him and his, true, and his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So God defines eternal life not as living in heaven, although it involves that. God defines eternal life not just in terms of how long you live, because eternal life does not refer to a length of time, because your spirit man is going to live forever somewhere. Eternal life refers to the kind of life that you're living, and it's the life of God, but it's lived in an intimate, communing, vital relationship with him. And in order to experience that and grow in that requires faith. And so as we look at this journey we're going to go on, we're going to look at it from that point of view. So with that as kind of a background of why this is so important, let's go to to, um, Romans chapter 4. This just started as a couple of ideas on Sunday or even this morning and just kind of grown the more I've more, even during we worship, some of this was, was coming to me. We're going to look and start in verse 9. Now, what's going on here is that the whole f- book of Romans is really the, the, the most complete explanation and teaching in the Bible of, of what salvation is, that it is not something based on your good works, your good deeds, or anything about you or me at all, but it's totally by faith in what Christ has done, and by faith in what Christ has done for us personally, God attributes to us his righteousness. And so Paul is explaining to us, he starts in the first two chapters, uh, first three chapters, explaining what sin is, in order to get across that we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I don't care how good you are on your very best day, you have fallen infinitely short of what God's holiness is and what God's righteousness is. And Paul is doing that to set it up, not to condemn us, but to show us that we need a Savior. And then in chapter 4, he begins to explain that this salvation comes to us by faith. And now he's going to use Abraham as an example of what faith really is. And this is why we're going to take a little bit of time to study Abraham's faith and how it began, how he grew in it, and then ultimately how it's exercised, and then finally the ultimate test of it. So we're going to go through this journey with Abraham together to see how God works with him to develop his faith. And it's encouraging because we're going to see, we may not get into this tonight, but we're going to see Abraham didn't do very well at the beginning. And it took time to develop his faith. But it's worthwhile. So that's why Paul is talking about Abraham's faith as we begin to look at these scriptures. So we'll, we'll start in verse 9. Does this blessedness come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcision also? For I say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. In other words, God took Abraham's faith and because of his faith, God attributed his righteousness to him. How then was it accounted when he, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Circumcised re- refers to the physical act that God gave to Abraham when he entered into a covenant with him. And we'll talk about that a few weeks from now. So he's talking about, because he's talking specifically here to Jews, 
who believed that they were approved by God because the males were circumcised on the eighth day of their life. And God, Paul is trying to explain to them that, that, that it is faith in what Christ has done for us, not in whether you've gone through some ritual or not. So he's going to prove that by showing that God had attributed to Abraham righteousness before God, before God gave him circumcision as the mark of that relationship. All right? So let's move on. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal or mark or evidence of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised. In other words, God, he was already been made righteous before God gave him this rite of circumcision. That he might be the father of all of those who believe though they were uncircumcised, that righteousness be imputed to them also. And the father of those who not only are of the circumcision, and this is what we're going to get to, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So Paul is and he's going to go on to explain what that faith is. We'll come to that after we've walked this journey out together. So Paul is saying to them, that, 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 that we need to learn to walk in the steps of the faith that our father Abraham. The, the, the reference to him of, as a father is he's someone that's gone on before us and we are going to receive from him the teaching and the, and the, and the imputing of what this faith is like because he's the first one to have walked in this kind of faith. And so he's kind of, we're going to look at him as a father that's teaching us something. So the steps of faith refer not so much to a checklist. You know, do this first, do this first, do this first, do next, do that. No, it refers more to a manner of walking it out. The journey by which Abraham learned and then grew in faith. And so we're going to follow him in this journey. To do this, we're going to go back to the beginning of Abraham's account. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to start with his background. Genesis 11, verse 24. This is kind of the heritage. Now, what's, what's happened up to this point is that uh, this is the end of the, the first phase of the history of man in the Bible, which is called the pre-patriarchal stage, which is before there was any patriarch or leader. And, and this chapter, uh, the beginning of this chapter, it's, we've gone through the flood, and Noah came out of the flood, and his three sons, and then each of his three sons become the, 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 the head of a, of a race. And we're going to look at the race that comes from Shem, S-H-E-M, from which the term Shemite comes. And so uh, he, then, then uh, uh, the writer, which is Moses, goes through the, the, uh, the, the, the genealogy that leads up to Abram. And we're going to start at the end of this. And Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. Next verse. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. So even still producing kids. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, who we'll find later becomes Abraham. So at this point, his name is Abram. So Terah begot or gave, uh, was the father of Abram, Nahor, 
and Haran. Next verse. This is the genealogy of Teron. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran, Abram's brother, begot Lot. He'll become important to us in a little while. And Haran died before his father Terah and in his, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. We'll stop, stop there right now. So the first thing we see in here is Terah had three sons. He had Abram, he had, uh, go back a second, I lost the other one. Uh, Haran, Abram, Nahor, that's right, and Haran. Abram's brother, Haran, dies, and he has his, a son, Lot. And what happens is the family takes Lot under their care to raise him. That's going to become important to us a little bit. Now go back to verse 28. And Haran died before his father and Terah in a native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So we're going to look at what this Ur is. We don't know a whole lot, whole lot about it. Um, now put that first map up. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see this. I've tried to make it as big as I can. Down in your right-hand corner is Ur. You are. Ur is in the is just northeast of the Persian Gulf. Um, it's in what was old Babylon on the Euphrates River, just nor- northwest, it's not northeast, northwest of the Persian Gulf. And there's some evidence through the, the, the name, as you trace it back, that, that these were moon worshipers. So the point, whole point here is they did not know or did they serve the living God. So this is Abram, Abram we're going to find out, is the father of the nation of Israel, of Hebrew, of Hebrew people. But they didn't start out knowing God. So Abram, at this point, doesn't know the living God. They're pagans. And most likely they worship the moon because the, there's indications that in the name of this, in the name Ur, it refers back to the moon. Um, and so, verse 31. Uh, well, I'm, 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 I already covered that. Okay. Oh, yes, I'm sorry, verse 30, I was in the wrong chapter. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and the son of Aaron and his daughter-in-law Sarai and his son, Abram, his son Abram's wife, and they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, to the land of Canaan. So put the map back up. This is the journey they go on. Again, I apologize that I couldn't get any bigger. So it start, on the left-hand side, you see the Mediterranean Sea, and just to the right of that is Palestine, what we know as Palestine. It becomes the land of Canaan. And so down in your right-hand corner is where they started out, and that's what scholars estimate was their journey, and they ended up at the end of that red route in a place called Haran, which is in the, what today would be in the southeast corner of Turkey. So that's quite a journey that they've gone on. And there they've settled. So they've left their family, they've left the city, and, and so you have this family now that's relocated up in, uh, up in what's now called southeast Turkey. At that time, this city of Haran was a major crossroads of, of travel between the whole uh, uh, Mediterranean region, which was very prosperous, and the very prosperous 
cities of the east, which was Nineveh and down in Babylon and some of the others. So the fact that it was a, it was a crossroads and a trade route means it was a very prosperous area. So it was a very, very prosperous place for them to settle and to prosper in. So it's important to have that as their background because when God comes to each of us, we all have a background. God met you somewhere. He met me in a law firm. I was not in the law firm, but I was a lawyer at the time. And we were prospering. We, I was making more money than we could spend. Not by today's standards, but I was doing very well. We had a nice family. We had a nice house. Everything was great. My wife and I, we were faithful to each other. We were honest. We were just, we had, we were just, we were happy. We had a great, our marriage wasn't all that great, but we, we had all the things that life could give you that would look like they would make you, make you happy. And yet something was missing inside. And so God met us in that prosperous place. Now God met each of you in maybe a different place. But wherever he met you, that was your, where you were used to living. That was your situation. And God came to you and met you there. So this is where they're settled. So it's a comfortable, prosperous place. We don't know a lot about what's going on with them, but we can only kind of, kind of, of, of imagine. Okay. Verse 32. So the days of Terah, his father, were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So now you've got Abram, and you've got his nephew Lot, and you've got Abram's wife, Sarai. Chapter 12. Now God comes on the scene. And we're just going to break this down and just see how far we get tonight. Now the Lord said to Abram, now let's just stop right there. This is the first record we have of God speaking or communicating in any way to this man. As far as we know, he didn't even know that the true God even existed. In all likelihood, as a pagan, they worshipped the moon or some other idols or maybe a whole collection of idols. We don't know how God spoke to him because it just doesn't say. But we do know that somehow God spoke directly to him and God calls him. So this is Abram's call. This is the beginning of the walk of faith and it is initiated by God and it's always initiated by God. Each of the disciples that followed Jesus, Jesus initiated the call. Jesus went to where they were. He went to, to, to Peter and Andrews, his brothers, fishing town, and called them. He went to their partners, James and, and John, the sons of Zebedee, and he called them. He went to Matthew, the tax collector, and he called him. We know he went to Nathan, Nathaniel. And he called him. Now it's interesting, there were several people that came to Jesus to try to call Jesus. There was a man that came and said, I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, you got to understand, my disciples don't have any place to sleep. They've left their homes. He said, the birds of the air have nests to sleep in, and the animals have, 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 have uh, uh, holes that they crawl in, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So if you're going to follow me, You've got to leave everything. And he walked away. Because unless God calls you, he has to initiate 
the call. And so, but he does. Now look what he tells him to do. This is significant. I never saw this until I was going through this today. Get out. <laughs> Get out of your country. Now just think about that a second. They're content most likely. They're probably prospering. They're happy. We don't know what they left back at Ur, but they've got their family there and they're doing well. And, and now God speaks to them and the first thing God requires is for them to do something. God always starts by requiring you to do something that you have to respond to. And usually it's some overt act, something that he requires you to do. And the reason of that goes back to what I taught about on Sunday. It has to do with faith cannot be separated from obedience. So the first step of faith that God's going to train or reveal to Abram starts by having Abram leave something. Leave something that's a source of his comfort. Leave something that's a source of, his, of what he's familiar with. And for, for each of us, it, it may well be something different. Only God knows what it is. And, and this journey starts with requiring Abraham, because think of the trust he's got to have. So he's beginning to develop Abraham's faith, but it's not done in a classroom. It's not done sitting in a Wednesday night service, although this is where we get the information, but it's done as we act out what God says. And so God says, get out of your country. Leave where you are. Now, this is going to require faith in a number of different levels. First of all, it's going to require faith for him to go tell his wife. I've been there. <laughs> uh, dear, I was wandering around out in the field today, and uh, I had this unusual experience. Are you sitting down? Uh, uh, the Lord spoke to me, and she's kind of looking up at the moon. He, he spoke to you, right? Yeah, the, the, the Lord spoke to me. Who? The Lord. Who's he? Because the Lord didn't speak to Sarai. I remember when I left the law firm in Boston, I worked under a partner that I had really, we, he was like, become like a father to me. He had trained me in, 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 uh, in law. He, he really, he loved me and I loved him. And when, when I came to tell him that we were leaving everything, and we were going to go to some place in the middle of the country I never heard of before to go to Bible school. He got scared. He couldn't sleep. I was sleeping like a baby. And I was worried about him. He's worried about me. And so I remember asking God, what, what, what's going on here? He said, son, here's the difference. I spoke to you to tell you to do this. And faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. The faith you have to leave this and to go where I've told you to go is because you heard me tell you to do it. He didn't hear me say that. So he's looking at everything you're looking at, but without having heard me speak to him. So Abram's got to go home and tell his wife, who undoubtedly hadn't heard this, that they were leaving their home. They were leaving the comfort of this city, of their friends, and they're going. And it leads to the second aspect of this. From your family, 
from your father's house to the land I will show you. So I'm sure his wife's next question, okay, where are we going? Well, he didn't tell me. He just said, I'll show you when you get there. So this requires faith at two different levels. It requires faith, first of all, to be willing to leave what's your comfort, source of comfort, and then to trust God's going to tell you where you're going and how to get there. There's something about our, our, our human mind in, our, in its fallen state. We want to understand everything. Little kids riding in a car on a long trip. We used to do a number of these trips. My wife's from Ohio, and we would have 14-hour drives. I would leave at 4 in the morning so everybody would be asleep in the car. And I could get three or four hours underway before anybody woke up asking me questions. <laughs> are we there yet? When are we going to eat? <laughs> they want to know. And we want to know, are, where are we going? Because we, we, we want to understand the, the, the journey. We want to understand where are we going. We want to understand where are we on the, on the route we want to understand because if we can understand, that gives us some sense of control. And our, our, our human nature, which is fallen, wants to have some kind of control over our life. We'll share it with God, but we want some measure of control. All the way from complete control to, I want just a veto over this. All right, God, you can tell me what to do, but I have the last say in this. And God has to, through a process, deliver us from that self, that control over our lives. Because to the extent we're trying to control anything, we're not trusting Him. One of the most important scriptures you never need to learn, not to memorize, but to live, is trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And so if I've got to understand where we're going, if I've got to understand how we get there, then I'm not trusting God with all my heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and then He will be able to direct your path. So right away, God's confronting him, is, is, is teaching him the very beginnings of the lessons of walking by faith with God. The disciples run into this. Because as Jesus is preparing them in John 14 to leave them, so this is a step of faith. They've had him these whole three and a half years. Whatever they've needed, he was there to provide for them. And they didn't take any faith. They could see him. They could touch him. They could hear his voice. They could smell the fragrance that was on his garments. So they, in fact, when he wasn't with them, they panicked. Like in the boat, even when he was asleep, they panicked. We talked a little bit about that Sunday. And now he's preparing them that everything's about to change that he's not going to be physically with them anymore. 
He tries to explain this is actually better for you because the same spirit that's enabled me and guided me who's been with you in me is now going to be in you and that's better. But they couldn't understand how that could be better when they couldn't see him and touch him. But he was raising their level of trust and faith. So even at the end of his walk with them, he was challenging them and their growth by faith. Now this can apply to us in a way that God's had to work with me on because we're all in a journey of faith. And I'm not even talking just about, you know, your finances and your health. Just growing in your relationship with God is a journey of growing in faith. And I often want to know, God, where am I in this journey? And I want to measure where I am by where I used to be. And then we get tempted to measure where we are by where other people are. And that's a dangerous mistake to make. Because first of all, you didn't start at the same place. And secondly, God just never deals with each of us the same way. Uh, Peter had to learn that the hard way because after Jesus has been raised from the dead and Jesus appears to them by the Sea of Galilee and, and they have the, uh, breakfast together and then God's restore, Jesus restored Peter after he denied him and they're walking down the beach together and Jesus is telling him essentially what his destiny is going to be. And that he's eventually going to, as an old man, he's going to be crucified like Christ was. Is basically what he's telling him. And then Peter turns around and John's following him. And Peter says, and what about him? So Peter was trying to measure himself with his fellow apostle, John. And Jesus' answer was essentially, if we put it in our terms, none of your business what I do with him. And likewise, it's none of our business what God's doing in our growth with one another. We are to care about one another, pray for one another, but we're not to compare ourselves with one another. That's a trap that the enemy uses. So even in your walk with the Lord, in your growth with Him, we have to trust Him to, to be leading us and to be guiding us and not to be figuring out where we are. Because when you start figuring out where you are, you've taken your eyes off of, off of Him. So that's all in get out of your country, <laughs> from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So this is the beginning of God setting out for him the step of faith. We're going to see, we may not get into it tonight, we're going to see that he doesn't do very well at the beginning. Uh, verse 2. And now here's the promise he makes to him. So God tells him to do something, and then God makes a promise. And that's very often how God works. He'll give you something to do, and as you commit to it, then he'll make a promise to give you an incentive and enable you. And I will make you a great nation. Notice God doesn't say, I will show you how to become a great nation. I will make you a great nation. That requires faith to allow God to make you what he wants you to be. I'm going to say that again. It requires faith to trust God to make you into what he wants you to be. I'm going to say that again. It takes faith to allow God to make you into what he wants you to be instead of you trying to figure out what it is and help him make it happen. When Jesus called his disciples, the ones we know, and he said to them, the, 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 the four fishermen, 
He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Not I'm going to teach you, show you how you can do it. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus talking about his church in Matthew chapter 18, I think it is, or 16. It says, and, 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 and I, on, on this rock, this revelation that I am the Son of God, I will build my church. Pastors have to continually remind themselves of two things. This is not my church, and I can't build a church. Only he can build his church. Now, there are people out there building their own churches, but it's not his church. I will build my church. In Isaiah 43, God speaking to Isaiah about the relationship he has with him. He says, for I formed you. I mean, I created you, and I formed you into what I wanted you to be. So God is announcing to Abram the destiny that God has for Abram, but God says, I'm going to do it. And we're going to see in this, grow, in this journey we go with him that it's a continual process by which God has to train him to take his hands off of the controls and to allow God to make him into what God wants him to be. And we need to learn to allow, because Philippians chapter 2 says, to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So when we get our hands on that steering wheel, when we get our hands on working this out, we get in his way. And he will teach us how to let go. And I will bless you. That's not because Abram sneezed and said, me bless you, instead of God bless you. <laughs> the word bless is a deep, rich word. And in, in, in the faith movement and things, it's just used so, so lightly. You know, but just God will bless me. God's blessing me and, and bless you and bless. And we, we've, we don't even know what it means. The word bless here is the Hebrew word barach. And literally... I want you to pay attention to this because this is astounding. It means, it means to bow down your knee to like this. And most of the times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's used of blessing God. So it speaks of giving yourself to him, acknowledging his position, and of submitting yourself to him. But this is not Abram blessing God. This is God blessing Abram. It's nothing less than God saying, Abram, I'm going to bow myself to you. And I'm going to offer myself to you. And everything I am, and everything I have, and everything I can do, to you. That's what this word means. That's what God's blessing to us means. And down the road you get into, into Galatians when it talks about the blessing of Abraham 
and it's used to teach God will bless you financially, God will bless you, okay. But it's far more than that because the ultimate blessing God has given us is literally his son. He's given himself to us. And that's what God is saying to Abraham. I have chosen you. I have called you. I will make you a great nation. And the way I'm going to do that is I am giving myself to you, to serve you. That sounds astonishing, except what did Jesus do in John 13 to teach them? What did Jesus do in John 13? I'm, I'm never taught this before, this way. Before he goes to the cross, he wants to teach them what it means to be in the ministry, what it means to relate to one another. And what does he do? It's a rented room. And there's, there's a basin of water in a pitcher and a basin of water and a towel. And the practice, you've heard me teach this before, the practice in those days, because they wore sandals, their fur would get dirty because the roads were dusty and dirty and had animals passing through it and all that stuff. So they would, there was a servant in most households that would wash your feet, take your sandals off and wash your feet to refresh you when you came into the house. Kind of like, you know, we would do this. I've been in people's houses where they want you to take your shoes off and come in. So I made sure, no, I won't go there. So, so Jesus now, the Son of God, Lord, takes his outer garment off and goes around, and what did Jesus do? He bows before them and he washes their feet. And he uses that as a lesson to say, you call me Lord, and such I am. If I, Lord, have washed your feet, have bowed to you and served you, you should do that for one another. And he was doing that to show them that what he was about to do that next day was the ultimate bowing of God to them, the giving of himself. That's what's included in that word, I will bless you. So it's not money. It may be included in meeting your needs. It's whatever you need. God is saying, I have, I'm the God of all creation. I am holy. I am entitled for everyone to bow before me. But I am humble. And I know who you are. And I love you. So I bow myself to you. To serve you. To meet your needs. To give myself to you. This is what he's teaching Abram. Religion gets upset at this. That's why they crucified Christ. Because religion hates this relationship that Christ came to give us. And I will make your name great. You're going to have a great reputation. And you shall become a blessing because I have blessed you. Verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. This is why it's so critical how nations and people treat Israel. Because God's promise is, I will treat you on the basis how you treat my covenant people. And if you bless them, I will bless you. But I will curse him who curses you. 
And that's the opposite of the blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is an amazing promise. And of course, ultimately, that speaks of Christ. It's through him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Excuse me. So God is establishing here, at the very beginning, the basis of the relationship he's going to have with this man, this pagan man, Abram. And although we'll see it later on, this is all language that speaks of a covenant relationship. All right. Let's go to verse 4 now. Let's see how Abram responds to this. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. So he's obedient, sort of, because Lot went with him. He said, you were to leave your family. So he brings his, co- his nephew with him. And as we go further into this, we're going to see that his nephew causes him trouble. And whenever we don't fully obey God, we leave an opening for trouble in the land. When God was preparing the nation of Israel to go into the promised land, the second generation, the one that made it, God warned them ahead of time and said, you need, if, if you don't drive out every nation that's in there, they're going to become thorns in your side and pricks in your eyes. And they did not drive out the Canaanites. And they were a constant trouble to them. They were a constant thorn in their side and a prick in their eye because they did not do fully what God told them to do. And we don't do, when we don't do fully what God tells us to do, it's because we don't fully trust him to take care of us. We're still exercising our own free judgment about what's best for us, and we're thinking, yeah, God, that was a very good idea, but I really need Lot. I don't have the courage to say, Lot, you've got to stay here. And so he brought Lot along and therefore brought a lot of trouble. No, sorry about that. I apologize. That was not God. That was me. All right, so. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all his possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, and so they came to the land of Canaan. Put the second slide up. Again, I apologize that it's not larger, but they start way up in the right-hand corner. That's Haran, and this is the best scholars have come up with. They came over towards the Mediterranean Sea, and they trace down, and they stop uh, in Shechem, and then they end up down, we're going to eventually see in the Negev, which is down in the very bottom. The details of this are not important, but I wanted you to get a visual image of where they came from and, how, and basically where this journey went and how, where it took them. Okay. Um, verse 6. So Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the Terebrith tree in Morah. And the Canaanites were in the, then in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord where he appeared to them. I will give this land, excuse me, to to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So now we see that God appears to Abram. We don't know what form. In chapter 18, I believe it is, God appears to him as three angels when he tells him what he's going to go to do down in Sodom and Gomorrah. God appears to him to let him know what he's going to do. So we don't know whether it was an angel. We don't know quite how God appeared to him, but we do know that somehow that God appears to him. Um, And your descendants. So God's always looking to the future. Remember he said... I'm forming a nation out of you. To your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So his response to this promise was to build an altar. An altar has two basic purposes in the Old Testament. First of all, an altar would very often be a pile of stones or some physical thing that they would use to, as, a place, as a place to worship God. So the first purpose of it is, is that altar will stay there as a memorial so that every time they see this, it can call them back and remind them of, that God appeared to him and what God said to him there. And the second is it is a place that's consecrated for worshiping God. In the Old Testament, they had to have a special place where they could worship God. They just couldn't worship God anywhere. They had to worship God at a specific place ordained by God. And in John chapter 4, where Jesus has the encounter with this woman at the well who is a Samaritan, and she gets into this discussion with him because she's getting uncomfortable because he's, talk, she's talking about his, her, he's talking to her about her married life. And she says to him, you know, uh, 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 you Jews worship in Jerusalem and we worship on this mountain. And Jesus says there's coming a day when true worshipers will not worship in any particular place, but where their worship God is in spirit and in truth. And you and I live in that generation. We can come here on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, and we can worship God, but you can worship God in your shower, you can worship God in your car, you can worship God in your bed, because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we worship God out of our spirit to His So we are in a very privileged time where we don't need to be in a particular place. But in the Old Testament, because Christ had not come, because the Spirit of God had not been given into them, there was an assigned place where they would worship. And so the worship is an expression back to this God who's made these promises to him and has taken care of him on this journey. It's an expression back to God of worshiping who he is. Worship at its very essence means acknowledging the greater worth of someone else. So the term worship <clears throat> comes from the old English word worth-ship, or the value of somebody's worth that's greater than yours. So worship is, in essence, acknowledging, expressing to God, there's more to it than that, but the very beginning of it is his greater worth than yours. So Abraham is acknowledging that what God has done for him and is expressing, expressing his, his gratitude back to him. It's an important response for us. Whenever God shows you something, this is a lesson I learned a long time ago. 
whenever God does something for you, or He's already done it, you just discover what He's done for you, which is most of them, or God reveals something to you, or God speaks something to you, always respond by thanking Him. Always respond. I try to be thankful all through the day for even little things because it develops a thankful heart. And a thankful heart does several things. First of all, it keeps my eyes off of me and on God. And it's a continual recognition that God is always working in my life. God is for me. God is blessing me in ways I don't even understand and I don't even know. When you get to heaven, hopefully God's going to show us all the times he protected us and rescued us we never knew because we didn't see what he was doing. Because either we prayed or other people were praying for us or God just in his mercy saved you. So being thankful keeps us conscious of him. Not only that, in Deuteronomy 28, when it talks about the blessing of the law and the curse of the law, one of the reasons the curse comes is because they were not thankful. So it protects us. Because if you're not thankful, as a, if you don't have a thankful heart, what begins to happen is we begin to start becoming, feeling sorry for ourselves, and it develops into pity. And pity becomes a very dangerous, pity becomes a very dangerous spirit, and eventually we become bitter. And the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that that bitter, that can become a root that can defile many people. And unfortunately, there are too many Christians who have experienced, have experienced that. Okay. I'm going to um, see where we are here. Verse 6. Well, verse 8. And they moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched a tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Bethel is a term that means the, the, the house of God, the dwelling of God. And I don't know what Ai means. I couldn't find it. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Called upon the name of the Lord. That phrase appears a number of times in the Bible. They called upon the name of the Lord. And I, I tell you what I believe it means. I tried to find different answers, and I got different answers. When you call upon someone, you're calling upon them either to invoke their help, their assistance, or you're calling upon them to acknowledge them. So calling upon the name of the Lord is, 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 is invoking him, involving him in what you're doing. It's recognizing him. And the name of the Lord refers to his character, his qualities, uh, God is too big to be any one thing. That's when, why Moses says, well, who will I tell him sent me? And God says, just say, I am. I am what? I just am. To put anything after it begins to limit me. God does have names that describe different aspects of him. And there's seven of those that are, re- what are called the redemptive names. I am the Lord that heals you. I am the Lord that's your presence. I am the Lord your banner of victory. I am the Lord that's your shepherd. I am the Lord your righteousness, I am the Lord who provides for you, and I am the Lord your peace. These are things God has bowed to us and said, I am this to you. So Abram's calling upon the name, the name of the Lord. So he's moved down to the south. It was on that, on that uh, map that we showed. Verse 9, so Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Put that map, second map back up. So we're down at the very end of that, which is the Negev, which is the very bottom of what is called Israel now. It's down just south of the, Red, of the, of the Dead Sea. 
at the beginning of the Sinai Peninsula. So we're, we're going to stop here because there's a change that takes place next time. And that's what happens is, I'll give you a, a preview, is uh, a famine comes into the land and Abram decides to take his family and go to Egypt to provide for his family. And what we're going to see is God didn't tell him to do that. So here God's promised, I'm giving myself to you to everything you need. And the first pressure we see he's under, that we see, he decides to take things into his own hands and figure out his own remedy. And we're going to see the trouble he gets into by doing that. But we'll pick up there next week. I just trust that as we go in this journey together, that it's going to help you, it's going to encourage you, because we're going to see that the great father of our faith didn't start there. He had many stumbles and falls. The interesting thing, the wonderful thing, is when you get to God's account of him at the end, God says he never wavered. And yet we're going to see he wavered all over the place. So I just trust we're going to have a wonderful... I just, I just, I'm excited about this. I really feel the Holy Spirit just expanding this in me. doesn't mean it's going to be a long series. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word that you give it to us, it's not just a series of instructions and principles, but you give us the lives of people that have gone on before us, real men and real women. And you show their real lives. You show their successes and you show us their failures. And you show us your, your unlimited, unsearchable mercy and grace that helps them along. And from that, Father, we can take great comfort as we grow in our walk of faith with you together. And so, Father, we just pray for this journey together as we learn to walk in the steps of Abraham as he grew in faith. So I again pray for everyone that's here tonight and those that are watching online or may eventually watch or listen, that you will open their eyes, Lord, to find out where they are in their faith. Help them to face where that is and to encourage them that you are working in their lives to help them grow. Help us to see tonight, as we heard tonight, Father, that you're at work in us to form us into who you want us to be for the purpose and call that you have for our lives. Help us to learn to let go and to trust our growth, our maturing into your hands and to rest in your capable, loving, gracious, infinitely strong hands and arms. We pray tonight, Father, for anyone that's watching that has never received Christ into their life, never seen their need, that you would help them to recognize that they have a need for a Savior. And we thank you for that beginning grace in their lives. In Jesus' name, 